Well, good morning. Man, this place filled up. Isn't this, I mean, anybody digging the weather, man? Oh, my goodness. It's July. I love it. Uh, the only time that I've ever loved it more is it rained one whole month in July. Y'all remember that? It's about seven years ago. <laughs> it rained the whole month. I mean, for 30 days it rained. We just skipped July as far as the heat was concerned. It was absolutely amazing. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to continue on a series that Brock started last week because how many, how, let's give it up for Brock Nevin. Did he do an amazing job? <laughs> Rediscovering theology. We went to the ball game the other night and still the wave. You know, can we do the wave for Brock? Yeah. Go ahead. One, two, three. There you go. All right, there you go, Brock. You got that. All right. <laughs> uh, Y'all are totally irreverent. <laughs> you know, currently, as we continue the series on rediscovering theology, we live in some of the most exciting times in church history. Would you agree? The gospel is being preached in more places than ever. Worship has been expanded. There is more opportunity to have great worship music being written today than really any other time in history. It's been expanded. It has different styles. There's all kind of varieties of worship that are absolutely fantastic. And the Spirit of the Lord seems to be on all of them. And the air, airwaves currently are full with the good news of Jesus Christ. And God says that his word will never return void, no matter how, how good that is. But, I mean, how, how, you know, how, how it comes, you know. There was a guy preaching, preaching down the street from Jesus and the disciples, and, they, and the disciples said, hey, you want us to go shut him up? And, and, and he said, no, don't do that. Let him go. You know, where the word's preached, it's going to bear fruit. And so as we, as we gather and as we understand that, that uh, this is good times, this also possibly has the potentials for some of the, uh, some of the worst times in history, too, as far as theology is concerned. When you start thinking about theology, our time today, like no other time in history, we have the potential for the church to heap up teachers for themselves or ourselves to tell us what we want to hear. Because of the communication age, we must pursue God, we must know God, and we, and, uh, we uh, need to have encounters with God that will reveal His nature. And, and there's no generation that has needed that thought more than this generation. And, uh, and so I just want to go over something. This mic is driving me crazy. It's not quite all right. I just want to go over a few things and, and get us grounded in some things that will help us rediscover theology. First of all, I want to start uh, by saying that God's plan has never changed. God had an original plan, and it has never changed. It, he, he's not going to deviate from his plans, and his plan is to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. And, and it's, it's a simple plan. Uh, his plan needs and requires his representatives to be carried out. And that would include Moses. That would include the prophets. That would include Jesus. 
that would include sons and daughters of God. And so there's this before the foundation of the world plan that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit be, uh, had in mind, had, his mind's eye was set toward that he will not deviate from or it will never be changed. He, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's never going to change. His plan requires that his people, his sons and daughters, pursue God, know God, and then begin to emulate him to the world. We become his ambassador's son. This seems simplistic, except for the fact that, that there needs to become a, 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 a rediscovery of the nature and the character of God and who we are as sons and daughters. So understanding the nature of God is a lifelong endeavor. It's something that we start when we first get saved, when we're born again. We're born and we come alive spiritually. We're born again. And we have the ability to begin this lifelong endeavor of discovering the nature of God and aligning ourselves with the purpose that He purposed before the foundation of the world. You know, so oftentimes it becomes about us. It becomes about what's my purpose. Well, your purpose is to agree with God. You agree with God, and He will use you in His purpose, which is to bring the kingdom to earth, right? And so, and so uh, we've got to have that. We've got to, to understand that He commanded us to build our house. It's a lifelong endeavor. This house building is built by establishing, Brock said last week, the foundation of a good theology. Uh, and theology, again, being, being the study of the nature and the character of God. So Proverbs 19.21 from the English Standard Version says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let me, let me read it to you in the NLT. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. You can have your own mindset. You can think you're going to do your own deal. But the purposes of God, they're actually going to happen. Amen. Proverbs 19.21 in the uh, today's new, uh, new international version says this. Many are the plans in a, in a human heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so the starting place to good theology Theology is your view of the Word of God. And here at Eastside, we say that the sole basis for our belief system is the Bible, which is uniquely God-inspired, without error, and the final authority on all matters on which it speaks. And so the Word of God was and is intended to prepare and equip us as we pursue as we pursue God, as we know God, and as we follow God, to show the world the character of God and His great love for us to express through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Basic theology, right? But it matters what we think. L listen to this. Let me, I'm going I'm to bust you up. I'm just promising you that today. I'm going to bust you up, and then we're going to put you back together. All right? You ready? All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 15 through 4 and 5. There's a very familiar scripture for us that have been around and for us who study the Bible and for us who have who've put our faith in it, who believe what we say at East Side, that it is the sole basis of our belief system that is inspired and without error. We're very familiar with this, but I, I kind of want to address uh, some things that are in the culture, uh, first of all, that get, get us away from, from good theology. And, and some of that is, is, is just what's being preached about the love of God, about the, the nature and the character of God, about who, who we are in Christ. And, and, and the problem comes because it doesn't fit in our culture today. We, 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 what we do is um, we, we listen to the definitions that, that the culture gives, and, and they kind of clash with the definition the Bible gives. And they, don't, and they don't measure up. And so it messes us up. And, and so I just want to get to what, what's written here, and I want to just show you that history has a tendency to repeat itself. You know, we, we, <laughs> we make the same mistakes they made 100 years ago. Now, we, we keep doing it. And it's all over Scripture, so I just want to kind of point that out. But we're going to start 2 Timothy chapter 3. You've been taught... You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from your childhood. And they have been given you, they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Let's read that out loud together. I just want to read that out loud. Let's do it again. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Now, Here's what I want you to clearly understand is that Paul is not talking about the New Testament. You see, you got a lot of people who, who want to act as if, you know, God somehow got saved. That, that, is, that his character changed. That, that something about him, his nature, uh, it, it shifted. It never shifted. They came to Jesus Christ because of the Old Testament and what it revealed about the Savior, the Messiah. And so anytime that anybody wants to try to get you to have a view of God that eliminates what the Old Testament reveals, you're on dangerous ground. Dangerous ground. Dangerous ground. I hear it all the time. Well, I, I live under the new covenant. Well, the covenant's always been purposed. God was redeeming, forgiving God from the moment Adam and Eve sinned. His whole purpose to redeem that which was lost. And everything in the 
Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi represents this is Jesus. This is what I'm going to do. And everybody looked to the cross. Abraham understood he wasn't scared to sacrifice his son because he knew about the resurrection. That God would provide the lamb. And so he's talking about the Old Testament. He says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. What's he telling you to preach? Which is the Old Testament, Jesus. But the word of God is not the New Testament in his This is Paul. This is the writer of the New Testament. Preach the word, he says. Well, what's the word? The word is what was established in his time. Be prepared whether the time is favorable. Or not. Let me say that again. I get paid to do that. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Now, this is our culture today. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and they'll chase after myths. In other words, if we don't like the definition or the nature and the character of God in the Old Testament, what we say, well, I'm not an Old Testament, I'm a New, I'm a New Testament, as if, if, if there's a difference. And there is no difference. There's absolutely no difference. Uh, they will follow their own desires, their own desires, and they'll find people who will tell them what they want to hear, whether whatever. Think about our culture. Think about all the different things that people want to say about sin. They call what is evil good and what is good evil. We live in that day. It is upon us, and it is dangerously close to infiltrating the church to a place where we don't know what to believe in the church. You know, the, we, 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 see, we, see, we see one political party right now fighting against other. I mean, the, the division in our nation is like it's never been in the history of the United States. And nobody knows who to believe. One side says this was lying. The other side said this was lying. All of them say the media is lying. I mean, it's just like everybody said everybody else is lying. And it's like, oh, who do you believe? You say, what? What happened? Oh, really? Oh, really? Really? Oh, wow. What do I believe? I don't know. That's where the church is. What do I, what, what do I, what do I believe in? And because we, and then what we do is we say, well, I like this. Well, I like this. And we go there because it tickles our ears. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. I love what you, uh, the, the Lord was so on your opening psalm. 
because it dealt with this very same thing. It says, it says if, I, if, I, if I stand on your word, God, and I am criticized, give me strength to make it through. You know, if you stand on God's word, if you stand on who he is, it's going to bring division. It's, it's, people are going to be offended. You can't not offend sin <laughs> with the word of God. And if they think that the love of God allows them to sin, then they're going to say, well, I, I, it might not be good, it might not be perfect, but God loves me and I'm good with it. I mean, you hear that everywhere today. You hear it everywhere. Brock referred to it about, you know, uh, uh, you know the award shows. Praise the Lord of Jesus Christ and they're living a homosexual lifestyle. I mean, you know, and you go, what? Just doesn't make any sense. And you'll see people doing that. Don't be afraid of suffering. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you, which is to bring the kingdom to earth. All right. So if that's the case, if we find ourselves here, let's just show you that mankind just all they do is repeat themselves. I got a ton of scriptures. I'm just going to read them quick. My hand will be against the, be against the prophets who see false vision. This is Ezekiel 13:9. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions. These are, these are the church and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people nor be enrolled in the registry of the house of Israel. Nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall not, and, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Jeremiah 23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. <laughs> they fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Luke 6:26. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Matthew 24, 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possibly, even the elect. How, do you, how are you not deceived? You, you, you have to know the character and nature of God. You, you, you have to know the word of God. Amen. Matthew 16 and 11 says, how is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Be on your guard against the yeast of the preachers. Be on your guard against the yeast of the preachers. Then they understand that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the preachers and teachers. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and 30. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Looking for people to follow them. So when I read this, and I read that this, this history repeats itself, and I see this, this understanding that Scripture is talking about the Old Testament, and I can begin to understand the nature and the character of God from the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
I have to understand, and I just want to give you some information and in, in recognizing this, that the, that the New Testament part of this book was not canonized until about 700 A.D. That was 700 years after Jesus was this New Testament put together. The Old Testament was put together about 400 years before Jesus' birth. And so right before the dead period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was the, 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 the Old Testament was, was put together. And some of the things that you don't know, that, that the New Testament was actually written from 50 A.D. to 90 A.D., and the ones in the, most of it was 50, 60s, and 70 A.D., and, and then John lived forever. <laughs> and so he got up in the 90s A.D., which is, which is you know, a, a good little while after, Je it was almost 100 years after Jesus' birth. But, uh, you, you know, you're talking about another 300 years before it was canonized. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because everything Paul is talking about, about the Word of God, again, is Old Testament. And he's saying it. all it was put together to do was reveal God, reveal Jesus, reveal the plan of redemption. And, and so, and so we, we know that to be true. So if I know that to be true, I have to understand this, that the birth of the people of God always starts with a revelation of His glory. You, 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 to, when you're born again, what God really wants to do is reveal Himself to you. I can remember, I can remember when I got saved. Uh, I can remember, Shannon, I just see you in the back. It's so good to see you guys. I love you so much. Pray for you all the time. I can't help myself. You just, uh, it just went. So I'm going to get back to the message now. Everybody give Shannon an applause. Hallelujah. Still praying for you. So, so, so it's, it starts with this revelation. I, I was, I can remember being in a church and, and I'm worshiping God and the spirit of God's coming on me and I did nothing. I did nothing. I did nothing, but I, I, I felt and saw, and, and I can't explain to you how, how removed I was from my sin and how I understood the depth of the forgiveness of God. Anybody ever been a really big sinner besides me, besides your pastor? <laughs> That'll give you encouragement. But <clears throat> when I came to Christ at 28, I mean, I was a mess. You know you guys probably were too. And I knew what I did. I knew where my heart was. I knew where, what my thinking was like. And I was overcome by the revelation of the love and the forgiveness of God. It was wider than I ever imagined. It didn't have a floor. It was as far as it goes. You can't separate yourself from that love. You can't. You can't do it, but it always starts with the revelation of his nature. And his nature, to me, in that moment, was a nature that loved me unconditionally and forgave me beyond measure. It's like I couldn't imagine somebody could forget somebody like that. I mean, there was no guilt, and there was no shame. It was remorse. But I... I didn't feel condemned. There was no condemnation. And so he starts to reveal his character and his attributes. So the reason that we have a hard time many times understanding the nature of God is our history and our method of defining words associated with the nature of God. 
And I'm going to back that up here in a minute. But we've got to understand the true nature of God. So we can't redefine his nature because we, 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 because we don't understand. We must redefine our understanding of his nature through the eyes of righteousness. Let me, let me say that one more time. We have to understand the true nature of God. We cannot redefine His nature. We must redefine our understanding of His nature through the eyes of righteousness. We have to define God the way He defines Himself. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? Have to define God the way He defines Himself. And so... And so God's description of himself, what I want you to do is I want you to see this Old Testament God and this New Testament God. First of all, let's look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is from the New King James. It says, And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy, wait a minute, let me do this, let me say this one more time. The Lord, the Lord God, this is God saying about himself, merciful and gracious. Long-suffering and abounding in the goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children and the children's children to, to the third and fourth generation. Now, if I look at that, and then I look at Paul's description of love, the glory of God the, to the church, that the, the, love is the nature and character of God. Love is who God is. It says, it says Paul says this, love suffers long and it's kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It, beha- it doesn't behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Similar description. Let me just, so, so I'm going to bust this one out. Long-suffering is to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. To be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. To be mild and slow in avenging. To be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. Now, the reason I point all this out is that's exactly what he said about himself to Moses. This is who I am. Now, here's the deal. This is what you hear. God's not an angry God. And what I want you to understand is that not his natural disposition. But what, what people will do is they'll say, well, God can't get angry. God doesn't get angry at you anymore because you're his son. Well, that's just not true. You can't back that up in Scripture. He says he's slow. <laughs> Everybody said, praise the Lord that he's slow. And his slowness isn't like your slowness. Praise the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. So when he says he's slow, he's like really slow. But he still gets angry. And what we want to do is we, we have a hard time, listen to me, we have a hard time defining love and anger in the same sentence. And the reason being is, is because we've seen, seen unrighteous anger. We don't understand that anger and righteous anger 
are, are two different things. Righteous anger, if God gets angry at you, he gets angry because you're choosing death and not life. And he gets angry at the thing that you're choosing as well. He gets angry at the sin, and he gets angry at the one choosing the sin. He, 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 it is righteous anger. And that anger is born because he loves you. We don't serve an enabling God. You, you can't keep doing what you want to do and expect God not to correct you or, or to get mad at what you're doing or, or to somehow bring correction or, or, or discipline to that situation. And it's born out of righteous anger. He, he's angry and jealous at the thought that you're not receiving everything he desires you to receive before the foundation of the world because you're choosing otherwise. He's angry at that. It's righteous. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a little minute, but I just want you to know that he's long-suffering, just the same thing he said to Moses. He's kind. He shows oneself. He's mild to be kind, to use kindness. This is his disposition. He doesn't have an angry disposition. He's not looking who he can squash. And that's, and, that's, and that's where it's gone bad. Where it's gone bad with preachers is they want you to get out of your mind's eye that God's this God looking for a place where you're going wrong so he could kick you for it. That he's an abusive God. He's not. He's mild. He's kind. But he's also not an enabler. He, he, he doesn't envy. He, he does, he, uh, envy means to burn with zeal. He, he doesn't envy. He, he's, he's not heated. He doesn't become boiled over with envy. He's, he doesn't have hatred or anger. In a good sense, he is zealous in the pursuit of good. He desires earnestly you pursue him. And he doesn't envy anything other than that pursuit. He doesn't parade, it, parade himself. He, he's, not, he's not boasting about himself. He's not on self-display. He's not uh, uh, self-display. He's employing rhetorical embellishments. He's not doing that. He's not, he's not exaggerating who he is. He doesn't have to exaggerate who he is. He doesn't have to try to impress you. You know, one of the things that I see and, and I think the church needs to get a hold of is how did Moses talk to the Father? You know, sometimes we talk to the Father a little, a, a, it makes me a little nervous. How, how, did, how did Moses talk to the Father? How did Jesus talk to the Father? You know, we, we, I think sometimes we want to make it something that it's not. I mean, I mean, I think, I think there's a tendency in all cultures to, to, to not be fearful, to, to kind of, there's this rebellious and you feel somewhat safe in your rebellion because there's not really a revelation of the, of the bigness of God. You, you remember, the, the people were pretty confident in their rebellion in the desert and then, and then they saw Moses on top of the mountain and the cloud took the thing. <laughs> remember, lightning struck <laughs> and it, it sounded like a, a great, a, you know, this great thunder, this great thunder. And all of a sudden they said, ah! They hit the ground. I'm not going up there. 
How do you walk in that kind of confidence and rebellion and then you see the bigness of God and you turn? In other words, words, what we have a hard time doing is understanding that the love of God, it's okay to fear the Lord. We we, we don't even, I'm going to get to this in a minute too. See, we have a hard time combining love and fear. We have a hard time with that because it doesn't fit our culture. It doesn't fit our culture. But the nature of God is both. He doesn't doesn't have to exaggerate about his bigness. (laughs) He's big enough. He doesn't behave rudely. He, He doesn't act unbecomingly. He endures, he remains, he tarries behind you, he waits on you, he he abides, he doesn't rescind or flee from, from, his love never rescinds or flees from you. It's always available, it perseveres. He stands by you. I've said already that, that people say, well, God's not angry, he's not, that's not his disposition. He's a loving, caring, kind, non-prideful, non-puffed up, uh, well-behaved God. <laughs> That's his description of himself. People say that's not his disposition. It's not. He's slow to anger. And even when he's angry, it's righteous. In other words, God commands us he commands us, don't let your anger cause you to. There, there, he doesn't say, don't be angry. Because it's part of the image of God. He says, don't let your anger be unrighteous. We have a hard time putting that together, don't we? Everybody in the room does. And the reason being is, is we've seen it abused. The reason being is we've seen it unrighteous. And so we've seen it so much unrighteous that we can't understand what what it means righteously, how how the two can be together. His disposition is not angry, but he does get angry. Let me give you the Hebrew translation of anger. Now, this will mess you up. I told you I was going to bust you up, didn't I? You ready? Hebrew, to grieve, to exasperate, to vex, to provoke, to make angry. The word portrays the kind of anger that results from repeated irritation and not the anger that suddenly explodes for no apparent reason. Greek, it translates as wrath. 31 times, anger three times, vengeance once, this this Greek word. Anger, the natural disposition, temper, the character. Movement or agitation of the soul, impulse of desire. Anger, wrath, indignation. Anger exhibited in punishment, hence used for punishment itself. Punishments afflicted by magistrates. That's the Greek. Now how do preachers preach around that stuff. It's because they can't marry love, kindness, gentleness with anger. They can't put the two together. 
because it's righteous anger. Because it's an anger towards you choosing something other than what is going to bring you everything that he has for you. It, it says that about him. You hear all the time. You hear all the time. Well, God doesn't respond to us in anger. He, he responds to us in love. All right, so, so let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1. This is Jesus. Anybody believe Jesus was God? Yes. Okay. You think Jesus has every attribute that the Father has? Okay, here we go. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely. That would be the teachers of the day. The preachers watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him, because they had bad doctrine. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around and when he had looked around at them, everybody say it, with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. That word there for anger is the Greek word that I just read just a minute ago. Now here's the difference. What you've seen is unrighteous response. Jesus was angry with that definition at these men, and his response was to heal on the Sabbath. But what we want to do is we want to change our image of God because we can't put those two words together. And we hear, we've got, I read a book of, from a friend of mine here recently on, on the love, uh, on, on, on love, God's love. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's, it was so off. Another thing you hear is, it's because Jesus died for our sin, all, all God sees is, is the good parts of you. <laughs> God, God does see you. He has vision for you to fulfill everything he's called you to do. He has vision for you to do that. But he's not, he doesn't say, whoop, I didn't see that. <laughs> whoop, I didn't see that. I only want to see the good. Not the way he does it. What, what, he, he sees it all. Now here's the good news. At judgment, you won't be judged for it. But in the meantime, you're going to be corrected into righteousness. Because he's got a love for you that says, I want to see you benefit for living righteously. I want to see you benefit from, the, from what righteousness produces. I've heard people say, in, in this sanctuary, I've heard them say, I, I've never disappointed God. I can't think of a time when I disappointed God. I heard them say that here. I was like, what? <laughs> now, either he's never sinned, or he believes that God doesn't look on the bad. And all he sees is good because Jesus died on the cross. 
Well, all those things are, are you know, the, the thought is Jesus dying on the cross. Your sins past, present, and future are forgiven. They will not be counted. He keeps no record of wrong. But he does allow sin to do its work in your life so you'll repent and come back to kindness and righteousness. And there needs to be a separation in those two. And if we have the wrong view of God, we aren't even correctable. If we think God, if we think God is just looking the other way, then we aren't correctable. And and, and, and then you would never raise your kid like that. You would never say, I'm going to turn the blind eye to disobedience. It wouldn't work. It doesn't work. It's your love that brings correction. And, and the Bible says clearly that he disciplines those that he loves. Well, you hear this, this word, well, God doesn't punish. What's according to what your definition of punishment is? If it's discipline, he does. If it's hold your sin against you at judgment, he doesn't. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, I'm, you know, I go on two weeks vacation and I'm still good at going over. And do not bring sorrow, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. That word for sorrow is actually grieve in some translation. I'm reading out of the New Living, but do not grieve the, God's Holy Spirit. To make sorrowful, to affect with sadness, to cause grief, to throw into sorrow, to grieve, to offend. Don't offend God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So, so God is good, but he loves you so much he wants to bring correction to you. He's not an enabling God. He's not a God that says everybody gets a trophy no matter what they do. (laughs) Uh All right. We'll skip right on over that. You don't have to fear God, people say. But God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, the only way that we can't fear God is that we have somehow created him in our image instead of knowing who he is in his. I mean, this is a big God. This is a powerful God that has every ability to smush you. But he loves you, and he wants you to prosper. What we can't do is we can't, we try to redefine what fear is. I hear it all the time. Well, it's really not fear. I mean, it's fear. (laughs) Well, the word in the Hebrew means great dread. Great dread. Well, yeah, but that's not really what it means. It, It means it means honor. Well, let me, let me tell you what the Hebrew dictionary said about this word. It said, <clears throat> like a woman respects her husband. 
That's how you should fear the Lord. Now that gets lost in this culture. What the heck does that mean? How do we identify that? We don't know how to do that. It's just not, it's not, it's not there. Would, I, would you agree, ladies? It's, we don't know how. Would you agree, man? We don't know how. Wait a minute. I can come back at you with Ephesian boys. So back off. Love her like Christ loved the church. Be willing to die and give your life up for her. I mean, there's this relationship that God established that we don't have a clue how to live in. And so we redefine it to make us feel good. And we go find preachers who are scared to preach the truth. Because it doesn't match the culture. It doesn't match the culture. And we want to change the word to match how it makes us feel versus understanding who our God is. And so it says, we fear the Lord. God says, we say, you don't have to fear God. We can change the definition. God says, this is the beginning of wisdom. Listen to this. Proverbs 16, 25 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. I just had to put that in there. Isaiah 66 says this, Has not my hand made all things? And so they came into being. Everything did, declares the Lord. The Lord says, Hasn't my hand made all this stuff? These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Uh, that word is anger. That word is the same word in the Hebrew. It means, it means to be in great dread of the word of God. Why? Because if you don't agree with it, there's consequences. You know that righteousness bears fruit, and unrighteousness also bears fruit. And you don't want, you have this great dread because you know that you're serving a God who is just. And he's not an enabler. And if you choose not to agree with him based on his word, you will, with great dread, receive that fruit in which you have sown. That's what he's saying. Tremble at the word. No, no, but there's good news. Proverbs 16, 6 says, In mercy and in truth, atonement is provided for your iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, this great dread, this trembling, one departs from evil. If it wasn't for that, that understanding of what it means, we wouldn't depart from evil. We, we, would, we would feel like we could just go doing it because God loves everybody. Jesus loved those who came against him, but he still got angry. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish. Whatever. He loved them as he's speaking to them. But they rejected his word. They didn't tremble. They, they had bad theology. And so this is, <laughs> this is what I'm getting at. Paul said the Old Testament was the word of God. John said in Revelation that the whole thing was. Don't add to, don't take away. This is the word of God. It's his fullness. It 
It reveals the character and the nature of God. There are no mistakes. We cannot create a God in our own image. We have to be drawn back to proper theology. We have to understand that love from an almighty God, from a God where the angels around the throne are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, day and night because they see the bigness of our God. There's a new attribute. <laughs> There's a new character trait. There's a new attribute of our God, and they say, holy, holy, holy. And then they look up, and then there's another atrium that they say, holy, holy, holy. This is not a God created in our own image. The universe is still being created because he's spoken and hadn't said stop. That's a big God that loves you, this kind that doesn't envy, that's slow to anger, that is patient with you, that wants righteousness for you. But he's not going to enable you to live unrighteously. He wants to empower you to live in righteousness. That's called grace. That's grace. So what do I do, Pastor? You redefine your images. You redefine your images of God's characteristic based on what he says. You stop redefining God. You stop finding people who will tickle your ears by creating a God in their own image, looking for people who will follow them. And so what you have to do, Brock, is you have to read the Word. You have to write the word, and you have to pray the word. So it gets in your heart, on the forefront of your mind, so that you're careful to do all that it says. And when you do, you will make your way prosperous. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand for closing prayer. Let's give the Lord applause. Oh, way too quiet. Yeah. So, Father, everything we said today is we want to return to the truth of your word. We want to return to good theology. Father, it's the greatest time in church history. It's also a time, God, where the most discrepancy to your word can happen. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we have a heart like the Bereans, to check everything we hear and make sure that it aligns with your word. And we say in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.